You're going to love this. Just love it. Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyan. We're off today, but we've put together some of our important recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. Coming up on today's show, former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman focuses on the coronavirus COVID-19 spreading like wildfire through the nation's prison system, where he has firsthand knowledge, having recently been released after a five-year sentence in what many regard as a political prosecution from the Federal Correctional Institution in Oakdale, Louisiana, which is now the site of the nation's worst COVID outbreak at a federal prison. But first, economist Stephanie Kelton explains how Congress and the Federal Reserve were able to conjure up more than $2 trillion in emergency coronavirus relief funding for individuals and corporations out of thin air to shore up the U.S. economy without a single peep from Republicans or the corporate media asking, how are you going to pay for that? Kelton says this demonstrates that Congress has always had plenty of money to take on big challenges when it really wants to and explains what that means for other critical issues important to progressives going forward, like universal health care, the student debt crisis, and climate change. Two trillion dollars created virtually out of nowhere. After months of watching the national debt and annual deficits skyrocket under the Trump administration following their 2017 tax cuts and months of hearing from both Republicans and many Democrats alike during the presidential primary campaign that we simply cannot afford The programs being put forward by progressives like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to assure health care and free public college education to all, to forgive student debt, to house the national homeless, or perhaps most importantly, to launch a massive Green New Deal infrastructure and jobs program to help save humanity itself. New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez noted the irony in a short video clip cited by the Bernie Sanders campaign this week. And it's actually a fascinating progressive moment because what it's shown is that all of these issues have never been about how are you going to pay for it. It's never been about whether we have the capacity to do these things or if the logistics have worked out. All of these excuses that we have been given as to why we cannot treat people humanely have suddenly gone up in smoke. And what what has been revealed is that all of these issues were really about a lack of political will and who you deemed worthy to be in an emergency or not. Because to me, in New York City, the highest rates of homelessness since the Great Depression has been an emergency. 
for a very long time. And we have had to have been pushing for housing as a human right for a very long time. Now that we are experiencing everybody who's threatened by the uncertainty of this moment, everyone's realizing, wait, we are all in this together. So uh, how is it? Whether it's endless wars waged around the world after 9-11 or huge emergency relief packages for giant corporations after the 2008 financial meltdown or enormous tax cuts and the resulting loss of revenue and the hole blown in our annual budgets from the 2017 tax cuts or now a record $2 trillion emergency relief bill amid a global pandemic that the U.S. government is always able to come up with the money that it needs to spend without so-called pay-fors, uh, reduction of spending elsewhere or increased taxes or pay-as-you-go policies such as those usually instituted by the far more fiscally responsible Democrats. Uh, how is it that we always have all the money that we need when at least Republicans agree that we need to spend it? Where are the complaints about the U.S. government going broke and that we simply cannot afford to spend hundreds of billions and now trillions and trillions when we need to, particularly when among winners and losers being picked by the federal government, the winners tend to be huge corporate special interests. Where are the deficit hawks from both parties today? Pretty quiet, it seems, and perhaps it's because the deficit itself is really a myth, as argued in a new upcoming book by Stephanie Kelton, a myth used to prevent the American government from actually doing what it needs to do to ensure the general welfare of the American people. Joining us now is Stephanie Kelton. She is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. She is a leading expert on modern monetary theory and a former chief economist on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee. Dr. Kelton is also the author of the insanely well-timed upcoming book, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy, due out in June and now available for pre-order for folks who may both uh, wonder where all of this government money is suddenly coming from and who may have a lot of time around the house on their hands to read books in the coming weeks and months for some crazy reason. Dr. Stephanie Kelton, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, you recently uh, published a... Uh, a humdinger of a tweet thread uh, charging that this latest pandemic and the huge emergency relief bill being put forward underscores how Democrats missed a huge opportunity to talk with people about what it means to pay for your spending proposals now that Congress is prepared to spend about $2 trillion without, quote, paying for it. Uh, did my introductory uh, rant uh, right there uh, underscore the central issue uh, that you were getting at in that thread? Yeah, you nailed it. That was really terrific. Oh, good. Okay. I, this seems, I mean, after, you know, months and months, of being told, including by many Democrats, that uh, no matter how much the American people may desperately need certain things, whether it's health care or housing, college education, a livable planet, we simply cannot afford this or that, that it will break the budget. And we're, you know, but yet we're suddenly able to pull two trillion dollars out of thin air. And I think, by the way, we're going to have to find much more. You can tell me if I'm wrong or right about that. But how is it that we can suddenly afford that without anybody, including the fiercest Republican deficit hawks, 
even batting an eye. How can that be? Why is that, Stephanie? Well, as you kind of alluded to in your opening remarks, Congress will always find the funds to accomplish the things that it considers a priority. If it's tax cuts, then that's the priority, and the money will be there. If it's wars, that's the priority. If it's dealing with a a global pandemic, then that suddenly becomes a priority. But, you know, you're absolutely right, and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is is, you know, I think this is really important that she's drawing our attention to this right now and making it clear, as she said in that video clip that you referred to, she Mm -hmm. said, it's now that everyone is threatened that we're choosing to act in ways we always could have acted. Those are her exact words. Choosing to act in ways we always could have acted. So it's not, why is it that we're now able to do these things? We were able to do things three weeks ago and Mm -hmm. 12 weeks ago and six months ago, you know, when we were in the middle of these Democratic primaries and the debate stage was full of Democratic hopeful to, you know, ranging from very ambitious spending proposals Mm -hmm. to, you know, less ambitious. But the question that confronted each of them, no matter where they went, was, how are you going to pay for it? Where is the money going to come from? Right. And again and again and again, we got bogged down with that question. It ate up enormous time off the clock during those debates so Mm -hmm. that we never really got to have a full and fruitful debate because everybody started pointing fingers and arguing about the cost, the price tag, your math doesn't add up, Mm -hmm. your taxes won't bring in the revenue you say, it isn't really credible, you know, and, and so here we are in this moment where we are witnessing the House and Senate, as you said, conjure into existence in a matter of days a couple of trillion dollars. And I think you're exactly right. This isn't going to be the last bill. We're going to have trillions and trillions will follow. And that's the reality of where we are. So I hope that we're going to learn some important lessons out of all of this. And I love your phrase, conjure into existence uh, this $2 trillion. And that's really what it is. In a a recent uh, op-ed, uh, that you uh, w- had published in the uh, at the New York Times, you dredged up uh, an, an, an old eight-second clip from 2009 with then Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke explaining how the uh, how the Fed uh, after the uh, global financial meltdown after that year's global financial meltdown was able to simply spend trillions without using any actual taxpayer dollars to do it. Is that tax money that the Fed is spending? It's not tax money. We simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account. So it's not even tax money, as the uh, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve at the time described it. Why have, you know, I haven't been able to read your upcoming book, The Deficit Myth. It's out in June. But is that the point at the heart of the uh, of this so-called myth that the U.S. can simply pretty much make as much money as we want whenever we want to? It is a central argument in the book, and from that, a lot of other things follow. Yes is the answer to your question. That One of the things that I do in the book, in the very first chapter, which is entitled Don't Think of a Household, Mm -hmm. is I try to shift the reader's thinking about the federal government's finances away from the ways that we're accustomed to thinking about our own personal finances. Mm -hmm. 
And so we have to disabuse people of these myths that, you know, we have heard from our politicians and from pundits and reporters, and every time you pick up an article, mm-hmm. you know, when somebody talks and uses language like the government needs to get its fiscal house in order, mm-hmm. just the reference to the house, that is household budgeting. That is asking us to think of the federal government's finances, the way we think of our own personal finances. And because all of us are aware that, you know, it's risky if we try to spend more than we take in year after year, if we're relying on credit cards and other forms of debt to get by, that this is dangerous. We can see people go go bankrupt, businesses go under. And so when when we hear politicians talk about the government's budget and the government's finances in ways that remind us of our own personal finances, mm-hmm. it becomes very believable that the federal government is like one of us. Mm-hmm. that it should manage its budget the way that we have to manage ours, you know, tighten the belt, live within the means, all those phrases that we hear. So what I do in that first chapter is draw a hard line between Uncle Sam and everybody else. Uncle Sam's on one side of the line. He is the currency issuer. Uncle Sam is the issuer of the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And all the rest of us, households, private businesses, state and local governments, We are merely users of the currency. We use the dollar, they issue the dollar. And that's really the the fundamental difference and why the federal government's finances don't work like ours, why they're not subject to the same constraints as a household or private company. And then once you get your head around that, a lot of other things follow. Now, of course, uh, while Uncle Sam can uh, basically declare this is how much money we have, and uh, as Bernanke says, you know, just use the computer uh, to change those values, if there is too much money pumped into the economy, too much money conjured out of thin air, then eventually we run into problems with inflation and so forth. But you're arguing that at this point, whether it's in the midst of a uh, of a, the, the crisis we're under now or uh, even, you know, a few months ago when we weren't under such a crisis, when we supposedly had a an economy on rocket fuel, that we could have done the same thing, that we could have paid to, you know, uh, send everyone to college or make, every, make sure everyone had health care or a home simply by declaring as much in Congress and ordering the uh, Federal Reserve to pay out those dollars. Yeah, so, so in that piece that I, uh, I guess in the Twitter thread that you referred to, mm-hmm. I tried to explain to people that Congress always has the authority, always has the option to write a spending bill with or without so-called pay-fors. Mm-hmm. So right now, this $2 trillion spending bill was written without pay-fors. It's just Congress sending one set of instructions to its bank, which is the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. And Congress is telling the Fed, we're going to spend $2 trillion, and these are the ways in which that money will be spent. Go make those payments on behalf of the United States government, and the Fed will make those payments. Right. But there's another way to write legislation, and that's the way that you know follows or adheres to this PAYGO rule, this budget rule, where you're expected to fully offset any spending you want to do. So if you want to spend a trillion dollars repairing and upgrading America's crumbling infrastructure, Mm -hmm. you have to pair that spending proposal with uh, a plan to raise, let's say, a trillion dollars in new revenue. And so 
that that would send two sets of instructions to the Fed. It mm-hmm. would tell the Fed, go out and make a trillion dollars of payments to Caterpillar and other companies, right, as we do infrastructure investment, and go collect a trillion dollars from these taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Do, do you follow? Yeah. So two sets of instructions so that when you follow PAYGO, you're subtracting as many dollars out of people's accounts as you're adding to other people's accounts. Right. And, and, and so that's, that's one way to do it, but you don't have to do it that way. So your question is, could, I think, you know, could you just, you know, a year ago, could we have just done free college mm-hmm. or Medicare for all or whatever? The answer is, first, yes. Congress can write and pass any bill it chooses, period. Mm-hmm. The, the risk, though, is that if you don't include offsets, and you're simply authorizing these huge spending bills left and right, at some point you're going to eat up all of the fiscal space that's available in the economy. In other words, it's mm-hmm. going to become inflationary. Right. So there is, a te- there is a time and a place for offsets. It's not a free lunch, uh, and Congress should budget our economy's real resources carefully, being mindful of how much slack is available in the economy to take more spending, without creating an inflation problem. For example, you had uh, cited in that Twitter thread, uh, Senator Sanders had proposed that we cancel $81 billion in medical debt, and you argue we could have easily done that without offsets because canceling medical debt would then allow uh, that $81 billion to be spent on other things. In other words, it would go into the economy. It wouldn't disappear uh, entirely. And as a matter of fact, it might... uh, help the economy more by having, you know, average Americans have an extra $81 billion that they are able to spend. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, canceling $81 billion of medical debt is like nothing. I mean, it's it's everything to the people who have medical debt, Mm -hmm. but from the perspective of the federal budget, it's practically a rounding error. It's so trivial. We could have done that and not offset it. And the point about me saying that it leaves people with with money that they otherwise would have spent mm-hmm. trying to pay down their medical bills, that they could have done something else with that money. And you're right. It, to the extent that that freed-up income gets spent into the economy, maybe the restaurant has to hire another busboy. So mm-hmm. if somebody cre- you're creating a job, yeah. you know, maybe you're giving a bigger tip to the waitress when you have a meal out so she has a little bit more money. I mean, you know, those are the kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wouldn't possibly have been inflationary. The, the numbers are just too small. So that was the kind of thing that you could just easily have passed, so, done, you know, major good for a significant number of people in this country who are struggling with medical debt. Uh, so I, I, so what I'm trying to, you know, you mentioned the first chapter of your book saying, you know, this is not the gov- that government is not like a household. One of the great cons I have uh, discussed for years is Ronald Reagan saying the government is not the, the solution. The government is the problem. Another great con that I think comes from Republicans is akin to the, you know, we should manage it like a household is we should government must be managed like a business. And I think mm-hmm. that thinking has sort of led to the great businessman that we now have in charge of our federal government. 
I and I think that's where it comes from that that sort of thinking. Now, you, Stephanie Kelton, you were on the uh, Senate Budget Committee on the Democratic staff of that committee. So I'm hoping you can give me some uh, insight here because it seems like it is always it's the Democrats who are actually the party of fiscal conservatism. They're the ones who institute these pay-as-you-go policies uh, when they come into power. Republicans never do any such thing, even while they pretend to be the fiscal conservatives. Uh, every time they're in power, they balloon the federal deficit. I mean, every single time. So uh, how do we explain, what, what do you su suspect is the reason that a, a great educator and, and, and finance expert like Elizabeth Warren or someone like Bernie Sanders, why have they been unable to explain these ideas in the middle of a presidential primary when, you know, even they were going out of their way to explain how their plans would be deficit neutral or even save taxpayer money, uh, as in the case of Sanders' Medicare for All program. I understand why the media picks up these sort of right-wing Republican talking points, but you had Democrats, you had Joe Biden, you know, turning back against both of these guys saying we simply can't afford that sort of thing. Why can't we get this message out? Well, so you mentioned Senator Sanders, and you've probably heard him say a hundred times, I know I have, mm -hmm. that change never comes from the top down. Mm -hmm. It always comes from the bottom up. And I feel like, and I say this in the book, that I tell a little story, actually, in the last chapter of the book. I tell a, a story about a meeting that I had with Congressman Emanuel Cleaver back in the um, aftermath of the financial crisis. I mean, the economy was, I, I can't, I, it's in the book, the year, mm -hmm. but I think we were technically in recovery, but conditions were still so bad, unemployment was so high, and we went to pay him a visit and went through all of this stuff about the myths and misunderstandings about the deficit, and by that point, Democrats had gotten really cold feet, right? They saw they did the seven hundred and eighty seven billion dollars stimulus. It it helped a bit, but it didn't go nearly enough. And they saw the deficit exploding, they saw the debt increasing, and they got very anxious and and pivoted toward deficit reduction. Mm -hmm. And so I went to visit the congressman, uh, along with uh Warren Mosler, uh, and we sat down and we walked him through all of this stuff, and there was a moment in the conversation where you could feel that light bulb go on. I mean, you just saw it happen. You know, he suddenly he was seeing things differently, and he uh, leaned forward across his desk, and he said to us, I can't say that. <laughs> and I'll never forget that, you know, because... Why? It's Why? Well, I'm, what are they well, afraid so that's of? your question, right? Yeah. So what, what would it look like? Imagine. I, I've done this uh, a lot of times. I would imagine what would it look like mm -hmm. if one of them, you mentioned two names, but suppose one of them had gone out on the debate stage or sat for one of these interviews with 60 Minutes or, you know, Sunday morning talk shows and gotten the question, how are you going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. Now, you have a... 12-minute block or a six-minute block or whatever, and you're going to try to deprogram the American <laughs> people and oh. convince them that, def that the deficit is the wrong thing to worry about. Actually, you don't have to pay for it. You can, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's an educate. You, you have to educate people, and nobody else in the world is saying it. So yeah. for, for him, for, you know, if it's whoever is going to go out and take that plunge, take that risk to be the first one to go out there and start talking differently about these things, unless you think that there's, there are people who are going to be behind you and mm -hmm. not pointing and laughing at you, but mm -hmm. actually 
be a receptive and thoughtful audience for that kind of stuff. I just think it's viewed as as way too risky at this time. Mm. So that's why I say, you know, we have to make it impossible for them mm. to walk into a room, to go before their constituents, to show up in their um, districts and, and go before their voters and have somebody say to them, Congressman X, we desperately need to be investing in blah, 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 and have that congressman say, oh, I know, I, I agree with you, I wish we could do it, but we got these trillion-dollar deficits, we can't afford it. In that moment, I want there to be enough people in the room who can stand up and say, don't give me that. Right. I know how it works. Don't tell me that. See, I think that's where the change will ultimately come from. That's the that's the deficit myth. And uh, it's going to take the American people saying, you know what? Uh, in many cases, the deficit doesn't matter. It, it, the spending matters because the spending puts money into the economy. And I'll tell you, uh, you know, Andrew Yang was willing to uh, go outside the box and he's starting to look pretty smart now uh, when he was talking about a thousand dollars per month to uh, all Americans. He was never enough of a front runner that people really pressed him on where that money was coming from. So he was able to say that over and over again. And lo and behold, what are we looking at now? Cash payments to Americans. And they may have to go on for quite some time. Uh, Stephanie, I've got just a, a few minutes here, but I want to ask a, a couple of quick questions. Uh, given what we know now about the this pending $2 trillion stimulus plan. I think you already said that you don't think it will be enough, but uh, does it take into account the type of spending uh, that you feel is necessary in a situation like this, unlike uh, the last couple of financial crises we saw where over the past decade or two where much or most of the money went to corporate interest rather than to the pockets of actual Americans? Look, I think that right now, and I haven't had uh, an opportunity to study the final language of the bill, but I'm not entirely uh, impressed with what I see so far. I'm mm. afraid it, it does more of what you just suggested, mm. uh, which is to say that it puts too much money into the corporate bin and not nearly enough into the hands of the people who most mm. need it, into the hands of working people, people who are losing their jobs, small businesses. So... I'm discouraged, to mm. be blunt. I am, I'm not an economist, but we had the uh, American Prospects financial journalist David Dayen on the show yesterday. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I, and I asked him about a tweet that I posted over the weekend that I described as Brad's bipartisan stimulus plan, and I would love to get your thoughts on it as well. Uh, here is one tweet. Here, here's what it is. One, Huge corporations may continue to receive the huge tax breaks that they were already given by Trump and the Republicans in 2017 for as long as two individuals receive the same amount each year in a new ongoing emergency cash payout package. Even, Stephen, end of plan. You can cancel both of them once the emergency is over, but you can't cancel one without canceling the other. Does that get us back towards where we need to be, Stephanie Kelton? Well, look, you're, you're definitely thinking uh, in the right terms that we, we've got to make sure that there's corporate accountability. We've got to make sure that the money that is desperately needed by people who are losing their jobs by the millions each week now, we're going to start seeing these numbers come in tomorrow. Uh, the expectation is that we're going to have more than 3 million new people uh, filing for unemployment insurance tomorrow. Mm. 
So yeah, you and and we got to do something to put strings on this. Mm-hmm. If we're gonna, but it doesn't look like we've done that. It looks like what we're gonna do is establish four and a half trillion dollar corporate bailout fund with very little oversight. And we're going to tell companies you can have this money as long as you promise not to lay off more than 10% of your workforce Mm -hmm. over the next six months. But then after the six-month period, there are no restrictions Mm -hmm. thereafter. So, you you know, I mean... Well, see, that's what I mean. That's why I'd rather give it directly to the people. It feels like the corporations, they already got their stimulus bill two years ago. And whether they blew it on stock buybacks or not, that's their problem, uh, not ours. Uh, But... Yeah, I think we're going to have to uh, figure this out uh, big time, and this uh, bill in Congress is just a part of it. The last question I want to leave you with is, after this, and I suspect this is why you've been writing what you've been writing, your books, your op-eds, your uh, tweet threads, and so forth, but is this something, after this emergency is over, if it ever is over, will 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 we remember this or will we forget it will we remember this when we re- when you know we we face the f- fact that we need to you know save the planet with a green new deal program that we need to spend and i, I you know i know fox news and republicans they're going they're already forgetting what's going on but will democrats remember this moving forward after this emergency is over so that we can finally spend what we need to spend to take care of the people in this country? And I hope so. I, I mean, I hope that the, the lesson is, I hope it's all being laid bare and that the, the right lessons are being drawn and that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past, that we look back on the legacy deficits and the addition to the debt and say, you know, in some panicked state, that now is the time that we have to begin to try to force the economy to return the budget to balance or something like that. Because mm-hmm. as, as you said, when we get through this thing, and we will, there's a crisis on the other side. We were already in the midst of a climate crisis. Mm-hmm. And so when the health pandemic problem crisis is gone, we're, we're right back in the frying pan. That's what I'm worried about, that even Democrats will go back to, you know, pretending, declaring they are fiscal conservatives. Uh, it's going right. to take uh, a lot more people out there, uh, So that, which is why I'm so appreciative of, of the noise that you're making about all of this, because it's going to take all of us to continue repeating these messages until... until until folks understand it, or we're going to be mired in this same muck we have been, this really Republican-based muck we have been uh, uh, mired in for decades now. Stephanie Kelton is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. Her uh, new book, her upcoming book, which you can pre-order now, is The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory, and the Birth of the People's Economy. Stephanie Kelton, it's uh, been an honor. I greatly appreciate you joining us. Oh, and people should follow you on the Twitters at Stephanie Kelton. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. That was Brad's conversation with Stony Brook University economist Stephanie Kelton. Coming up next on Bradcast Recounted, Brad's conversation with Alabama's former Democratic Governor Don Siegelman on the deadly coronavirus outbreak at the Federal Correctional Institution in Oakdale, Louisiana, where the governor himself was held for five years until recently for a crime that more than 100 former Democratic and Republican attorneys general charged was never a crime at all, at least until Republicans charged Siegelman with it. That alarm is sounded next on Bradcast Recounted. Don't touch that dial. (laughs) 
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Inside a county jail in Alabama in mid-March, which is an eternity ago in coronavirus time, two inmates threatened to commit suicide if newly arrived immigration and customs enforcement detainees they feared had been exposed to the virus were not removed. According to video live streamed on an inmate's Facebook page, the two detainees stood on the ledge over a common area nooses fashioned from sheets wrapped around their necks and threatened to jump. The three new detainees had described being brought to the facility in the same van as an individual who was visibly ill and wearing a mask. The hours-long standoff ended, thankfully, when guards moved the new arrivals to a different unit. But in the middle of a global pandemic that has much of the world now attempting to stay home in various forms of quarantine or otherwise practicing social distancing when in public, while hospitals are facing bed and ICU shortages, not to mention their own shortages of personal protective equipment, ventilators, and yes, shamefully, still a shortage of test kits for the virus. With all of that going on, it is easy to overlook the millions that are being held in detention facilities, whether jails or immigrant detention centers, without the ability to physically distance themselves from others, much less enjoy access to masks and gloves and hand sanitizer. About 2.3 million people are incarcerated in local jails and state and federal prisons, according to the Prison Policy Initiative, an organization that opposes mass incarceration. Most have nowhere to go to avoid possible infection, and there have been persistent and horrifying stories since the outbreak began coming out of the nation's jail and prison system about clusters of infections inside those detention facilities, even as such stories uh, receive little attention in the mainstream media more often than not among the reports of rising infection and death rates in the general population. And the hours that many media outlets spend, I would say, waste offering live coverage to a president of the United States to offer completely false narratives, blatant lies and increasingly outrageous attacks on the truth and the journalists who attempt to report it. 
Perhaps they could, you know, break away from broadcasting those lies by the president of the United States for even five minutes each day just to note the particularly harrowing and deadly circumstances that millions of Americans who are serving long or even short jail terms, often for nonviolent offenses, are now being forced to endure as those terms in many cases are becoming potential death sentences. And if some Americans find it difficult to empathize with prisoners, perhaps they might find it within their cold hearts to be concerned about the prison workers who are forced to expose themselves each day to intolerably dangerous conditions in those same facilities. Or perhaps you haven't considered the plight of those inmates who have yet to be found guilty of anything at all, yet are forced to live in dangerously close quarters while many trials or other hearings are now delayed due to the closure of courts because of the coronavirus pandemic. The conditions and reality of incarceration make prisons and jails tinderboxes for the spread of disease. In New York City, jails like Rikers Island are also seeing infection rates grow exponentially despite promises from city and state officials of mass releases of inmates. But those have happened too slowly, according to the inmates and staff and their families. Federal facilities appear to be moving even slower, and the number of infections and deaths by federal officials at the, uh, reported at the Bureau of Prisons, or the BOP website, seem impossibly small. As of April 7, there are 241 federal inmates and 73 BOP staff who have tested positive for COVID-19 nationwide. They say there have been eight federal inmate deaths and zero BOP staff member deaths attributed to COVID-19. Well, that is 314 total infection uh, infections of inmates and staff alike at all 40 federal BOP facilities, 314 total infections, while the Cook County Jail in Chicago has 387 all by itself. The federal numbers seem impossible, but we have come to expect no less from this particular federal government. The American Civil Liberties Union filed a class action lawsuit against the Federal Bureau of Prisons director and the Oakdale prison warden, accusing them and Attorney General Bill Barr of not moving fast enough to save the lives of inmates from what may be the worst coronavirus outbreak in the federal penitentiary system. Last week, I was contacted by a former prisoner at the facility trying to warn me that, as another inmate had told him, the disease was going to spread like a California wildfire and that there is nothing we can do to protect ourselves. Joining me now is that former prisoner. He is also Alabama's former governor and the last Democrat, I would prefer to say the most recent Democrat, to serve in that role from 1999 to 2003. Governor Don Siegelman, whose case we have reported on here at the Brad blog for many years, was sentenced to seven years in federal prison for what more than 100 former attorneys general, both Democratic and Republican, have described 
as, uh, as something that had never been considered a crime before Siegelman was charged with it. A bribery-related bribery charge in which, in which Siegelman did not personally benefit by one dime. And in a case so marred with prosecutorial misconduct tied to Karl Rove and Siegelman's Republican predecessor in office, Governor Bob Riley, that many, including us, have characterized Don Siegelman as a little more than a political prisoner targeted by the Bush administration and Republicans at the time, as he was once seen as presidential timber, as a very popular governor from a southern state and the only person in Alabama's history to have served in all four of the top statewide elected offices, from secretary of state to attorney general to lieutenant governor and governor, that until he was taken down by a dubious election in which ballots were found to have been changed in the middle of the night on a Diebold optical scan tabulator. Governor Siegelman was released from the Oakdale facility himself in 2017 and ended his probation in 2019. And I am delighted to have him back on the broadcast, even under these uh, horrific circumstances. Welcome back to the broadcast, Governor Siegelman. Hey, Brad. It's uh, good to be able to talk with you. The last time I spoke with uh, a radio program while I was in prison, yeah. um, I was I was immediately handcuffed and put into solitary confinement for 59 days oh. so uh, i was uh, i was calling uh, one of your colleagues mm -hmm. up in uh, northwest tom hartman yep. to, i mean yeah, yeah report to him on uh, the progress that i thought needed to be made in the safe justice act and encouraging people to call their members of congress and that's one of the things i want to encourage your listeners to do is to Continue to call your mayors, your governor, uh, and, and members of Congress, and to keep the pressure on to get these people out of, of jail and out of prisons that uh, pose no public safety risk, mm -hmm. that have only a few months remaining in their sentence, that are nonviolent, many first-time offenders, most of whom can, can go home on home confinement and others who can be on an electronic monitor. But, you know, we've had uh, some wonderful support from Congresswoman uh, Bass and also Jerry Nadler, uh, uh, mm -hmm. Congressman Hank Johnson from Georgia, Bobby mm -hmm. Scott, and, uh, and Steve Cohen from Tennessee. Anyway, there's been a, an outpouring of support from the, uh, from the Democrats, at least, on the House Judiciary Committee to encourage Bill Barr <clears throat> to take action immediately to let these people out. My question is, why are they there in the first place? If they, if they pose no threat to public safety, mm -hmm. if they are nonviolent offenders, if they only have a few months remaining on their sentence, if they are at risk because of health reasons, mm -hmm. <clears throat> why not let them out? I mean, they should have been out already. The problem that this presents, when you have 1.3 million people in state prisons, which is worse than federal prisons. Almost all of them are overcrowded. Same thing in jails. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned that the conditions are so grim. Yeah. People are living so close together with no protection. You know, they don't have the mask, the gloves. Many of them are in communal showers. They share the same soap. Uh, it is a breeding ground for 
things like the coronavirus. Well, let so, me let me ask you about that specifically, because uh, I know when you reached out to me last week, uh, I could tell that you were exceedingly worried about many of your uh, your former cellmates at Oakdale and about the uh, general prison population at large amid this epidemic. But Oakdale, uh, you know, is being reported as having an explosion of coronavirus cases. What have you been hearing from those? Are you still in touch with those uh, that you were uh, incarcerated with at the time? What are you specifically hearing from some of those folks there? Well, the, con- the conditions at Oakdale were were bad before the, the virus started. And, and you know, if, if people can imagine living stacked one on top of the other, and, and basically in a warehouse, it's a cinder block building with an aluminum, with a, a tin roof. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, they're stacked one on top of the other. They're so close together, you can actually reach out and touch the other inmate if you wanted to do that uh, while you're lying in your bunk. Mm-hmm. Some... It, in one in one room in Oakdale, where I was for a period of time, we were stacked three on top of each other, not mm. just a regular bunk bed, but it was it was called the submarine room because you you felt like you were that's where where you were because it was so crowded, you you absolutely couldn't do anything other than go to your bunk and lie down, couldn't sit up in bed because there wasn't enough room to sit up, but there, there is no ventilation, the doors are shut, the windows are locked. They have fans that blow dust and, and whatever else from one end of the dorm to the other. Uh, they have stopped the fans so that now, you know, you know, inmates just hear each other cough and sneeze and, and, and you know, whatever else. But, you know, there's nothing to protect an inmate from breathing in what other inmates are exhaling, coughing, or, or expelling from their bodies. So... Uh, it's a dangerous situation. And there's no way, uh, have you heard, have they taken any particular uh, extra measures in the middle of this uh, pandemic to somehow separate prisoners more? Or is there just nowhere to go, nowhere to move folks? Well, they're not taking any any extra precautions to, to move them. And the problem that is evident in the ACLU lawsuit is that it takes the BOP forever to do anything, to implement anything. You know, part of the mentality is if prisons are full, everybody keeps their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mm-hmm. know, prosecutors, judges, lawyers, the, the, the guards, you know, everybody's, everybody's it, it's, a, it's a system that feeds off of itself. So there has been, over time, uh, you know, with the lock them up and throw away the key attitude, mm-hmm. particularly on the part of uh, prosecutors and judges who seek the public approval for re-election, uh, you know, to give long sentences without regard to whether it makes any uh, any any sense mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what's in the best public benefit or what's in the best interest of the, that uh, trying to uh, rehabilitate that inmate. Mm-hmm. I want to give you one quick example, and then I'm going to give it back to you, Brad. But Mm -hmm. I I wrote a lot while I was in prison. Of course, I had had a lot of time to write. I had five years, so there was no excuse excuse for not writing. And and one of the things, of course, I wrote a book that's out and will be available on Amazon, Stealing Our Democracy. But in that book, I talk about one inmate, uh, Juan Garcia. I, I struck up a conversation with him and started looking over his uh, his 
legal documents. And he had been arrested in 1994 for a half ounce of marijuana, got a felony on probation, 97 uh, half ounce of marijuana or more, uh, uh, felony, probation. In 99, he got he was uh, indicted on a, in a drug conspiracy, marijuana conspiracy, uh, no amount of marijuana charge. He had served 19 years in prison mm. for piddly amounts of marijuana. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those are the kind of people who don't need to be in prison in the first place. Mm-hmm. And or if they do, you know, surely to God, not for 19 years. And, you know, so what we've got to do, hopefully out of this, out of this, you know, we, we will find a way to move those people from these confined spaces to other facilities where they can be spaced out. Again, these people are nonviolent. Right. And most of them, or many of them, first-time offenders, many of them with short term, so they're not going anywhere. They're not going to try to, to escape when they only have three months left on their sentence. Right. But they need Oakdale and other prisons like Oakdale around the country need to be moving these inmates from these confined places into buildings where they can be separated, and so there will be less likely of the virus uh, continuing to spread at this exponential rate. And uh, you know, I should say that uh, Oakdale is a minimum security prison. I and I, I don't know if it's fair to say it's one of the nicer facilities ah, in that sense. That. But you know. No. Compared to Rikers yeah. and some of the maximum security prisons, I mean, I can't imagine that the uh, conditions are any better in 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 those facilities. No, no, Mike, no. I was uh, I was put into a maximum security prison at one point just mm-hmm. during the during the transition uh, to Oakdale, but uh, yeah, in many of those prisons, they are in uh, the old cells with bars Mm -hmm. and they are separate from other inmates in some Mm -hmm. cases in some cases they're doubled up but um what makes the camps uh worse is that everyone is confined in this small space Mm -hmm. and are stacked one on top of the Mm -hmm. other in such close proximity that uh there is no way to protect themselves from someone who has the virus who's a carrier so it's a it's a it is a you know they're like it's so the virus is going to be like shooting shooting fish in a barrel yeah. or they'll so it's, it's a dangerous situation. Yeah, I mean, as I was uh, working on uh, preparing to talk to you today, I was looking at one story after another with one person after another, whether it's a, a prisoner, whether it's a guard, whether it's an attorney, uh, advocates, uh, all sort of you know referring to these places at this time as death traps and saying over and over again, you know, we're talking about prisoners who were not sentenced uh, to a death sentence. And yet that is what many of them are now facing unless something is done. Also, uh, Governor, uh, the um, you had mentioned a, a number of Democrats uh, that were, were trying to do something on this and encouraging folks to contact their own uh, representatives. I should also note that uh, Republicans as well, at least uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, Senator Mike Lee, have also been trying to push Attorney General Bill Barr to take action here. 
Uh, I think they are, you know, they're looking at uh, taking action of some sort. But, you know, in in this pandemic, days are the equivalent of weeks and months. This needs to move uh, quickly at the federal level. Are states doing any better as far as you can tell, Don? Are governors doing enough? Uh, Is is your governor in Alabama, Kay Ivey, is she releasing any prisoners from uh, state facilities at least? No. uh, In fact, they they. They went in, in a for a period of time at least have gone in a in a retreat mode. They shut down the pardons and parole board altogether. Um, so, no, in, in Alabama uh, certainly there's not enough being done, and I would suspect in most states there's not enough being done. I think Governor Newsom has has uh, you know mm-hmm. has and, and Governor Cuomo in New York and both taken positive action, shown some real leadership, and um, you know you would hope that that kind of leadership would catch on in other states, and perhaps it will. The, the, the problem with the BOP is you can give a, you know, even the president can give an order or the attorney general can give an order, but the, the director of the BOP needs to give an order, and they need to give an unequivocal order and, and not leave it to the wardens to make a decision mm. or leave it to the prosecutor to, because prosecutors are always, generally, not shouldn't say always, mm-hmm. but prosecutors nine times out of ten are going to oppose the release of, of your grandmother mm. if she was on her deathbed. So, you know, uh, they need to just say inmates that are nonviolent, that are pose no public safety risk um, need to be released or at least placed in another facility where they are separate separate from other other inmates those people who are three months away from being released anyway send them home to a to home confinement right it, or, or people who are on in in uh, in jails for uh, parole violation if they can't make bail so what you're going to save the state and the taxpayers money or the city money if you let them out because they're you know we're going to spend more keeping them in than they're going to pay in bail and again I, I you know that's one of the reasons why I wanted to underscore you know if if there are people out here listening to this show who for whatever reason are not particularly sympathetic to prisoners I think they should be but even if they are not be concerned about the staff members. Be concerned about the staff members' families uh, in all of this, because you know, with an explosion of cases in one federal prison, does not only affect those prisoners; it affects uh, you know the staff, their families, and everyone in the community. Be- before I, before I let you go, Governor, uh, a couple of just well, we mentioned uh, Governor Kay Ivey in Alabama. Uh, she was among the slowest to respond to this outbreak. Uh, she didn't take any special precautions there at the time i believe she has finally relented and issued a a stay-at-home order in in alabama and our uh folks your fellow uh residents there in alabama finally following these uh stay-at-home orders well the public was far ahead of the governor in this case they were they were already practicing social distancing staying at home and away from work for the most part from what my personal observation and knowledge i think people were doing it uh, before the governor uh, issued the order but it certainly is help helpful to have that that leadership from the top and we would hope that the president of the united states would get on board and and uh, 
follow the advice of his uh, health, you know, the people yeah. who know health and health care and yeah. take this a little bit, little bit more seriously. Yeah, we, w- yeah. we would hope, Don, but uh, we can keep hoping, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, don't, don't, don't hold your breath. Yeah, right? not for this president. Uh, Governor Siegelman, uh, we, hopefully we can have you back in better times to talk about your, your book that is, uh, I think it's on, it's on sale, but it's not yet available. Am I right about that? Stealing Our Democracy? It, 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 yeah, stealingourdemocracy.com will get you into our website or just go to Amazon and you can pre-order it, and I would encourage you to do that. Also, for Amazon Prime members, you can watch the documentary that was made about my case, and it's called Atticus versus the Architect, mm-hmm. and that'll, that'll give you a flavor of what the book is about. Of course, um, you know, you can probably tell by, by, by passion here that what I want to do now is uh, speak out loudly and clearly for criminal justice reform so that we can uh, protect those most vulnerable and also uh, uh, restore our democracy in this country. Tall orders uh, ahead of you, Governor. Uh, But if anyone can do it and if anyone can stick on it, I'm sure it will be you. Folks can uh, find the book at stealingourdemocracy.com. We will link to it, of course, at bradblog.com. The book is called Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation. Uh, Governor Don Siegelman, I'm glad you are out and about. And, uh, well, now you're back in (laughs) in your house. (laughs) But hopefully you are... uh, you are safe uh, along with uh, your family and greatly appreciate you joining us on the broadcast today and uh, helping us to uh, ring this important alarm, sir. Thank you, Brad. Look forward to talking to you again. Me, as do I. Thank you. And that's it for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks to our guests today, economist Stephanie Kelton of Stony Brook University and Alabama's former Democratic Governor Don Siegelman. And, of course, to you for spending part of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And that is thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com donate to help us continue to stay independent over over your public airwaves during these unprecedented times. Please find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. Drop us an email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. We'll be back soon. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. And as Brad always likes to say, good luck world. <laughs>